Welcome to a News Laundry podcast. This is Global Summits. Where are we going? Hi, my name is Birad Swain. Welcome to News Laundry podcast. We are going to be discussing in this series Global Summits. Where are we going? We've all heard about summits happening in exotic locations paid for by the United Nations, i.e., you and me as taxpayers. But have we ever wondered what do we achieve in the summits? And do they reach their goals? And how do the summits affect your and my life? And why should we care? <laughs> so in 11-part episodes, we're going to be taking apart each of the summits and what they mean for you and me and why we should care. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing financing for development. The summit called Third International Financing for Development happened in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. We're going to be discussing the global taxation issue, considering 2014 parliamentary elections was contested on black money and tax evasion. Remember, our prime minister said 15 lakh in everybody's account. So we're going to be discussing what does it mean and have we made developments. We're also going to be discussing if we progressed or regressed from the last conference of financing for development in Doha in 2009, especially considering this is the first summit which is actually happening after the financial meltdown. We'll also discuss the shadow of Greece on this particular negotiation and the role of private sector in global development finance. And finally, last but not the least, was enough money raised to meet our development commitments for the next 15 years, which is going to affect your and my lives and our children's lives. We have an extremely eminent panel, but before we bring in the panel, I would like to do the subtle plug. Please remember, programs like this is possible because of independent media. Please support independent media. Please support News Laundry. Help us to keep news free. Before we bring in our panels, let's hear this take on the third International Financing for Development Summit in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. From the 13th to the 16th of July this year, finance leaders from all the 193 countries of the world got together in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. These leaders finalized a deal that will basically determine the future of financing development goals of all the countries. After much negotiations and late-night talks, the final deal was reached. It is called the Addis Ababa Action Agenda. Here are some of its outcomes. 1. 0.7% of gross national income of the rich countries was recommitted for global development aid. 2. A new project was launched. It was called Tax Inspectors Without Borders. This project will help develop systems where tax evaders, which India has many, get nabbed. This is especially helpful for developing and poor countries. 3. A sum of $12 billion was committed to the agenda of women and children. 4. A group of the seven richest countries committed to lift 500 million people from absolute poverty permanently. And 5. Commitments were made to generate $120 billion till 2020 to finance access to sustainable energy. Indian delegation was led by Jayant Sinha, the Minister of State for Finance. India's role came in for high praise by the Developing and Poor Countries Bloc, the G77 and civil society organizations. We have an extremely eminent panel today. We've got Pooja Ranga Prasad, the Policy Coordinator for Financial Transparency Coalition, sitting out of Delhi but actually working with a global remit headquartered in Washington, D.C. 
Hi, Pooja. Hi, nice to be here. Uh, we've got Yamini Mishra, the gender responsive budget specialist from UN Women's. Yay, we've got a UN Women's staff. And she handles the remit for Asia Pacific. And she's based out of Delhi again, but with the Asia Pacific remit. Hi, Yamini. Hi, Biraj. Uh, we've got Nitin Desai. Career diplomat, economist, who was the Under Secretary General of UN DESA, Department of Economic and Social Affairs, who, other than her, all his strings of achievement, also organized the first Financing for Development Summit in Monterrey. Hello, uh, Mr. Desai. Hi, yeah, sir. Incidentally, I'm not a career diplomat. I'm a, I was parachuted in both into the government of India and the UN. Stand I'm, a, I'm an economist by training and background. Stand corrected. But you did spend 13 years or more in UNDESA, right? Yeah, but as a substantive person, not as a diplomat. <laughs> okay, stand corrected, Mia Kulpa. Uh, but you did you, you did also organize the first FFT, right? Yes, I did. I also, also the first Rio Summit, the Copenhagen Summit, FFT, the Johannesburg Summit. These are the four big ones that I organized. Okay, so he's the go-to person for Gyan on for issues like for, this. For Gyan on what happened more than 15 years ago. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we'll get a historical perspective and okay. look at the post-2008 meltdown world. And we've got Mihir Sharma, the irrepressible opinions editor of Business Standard, joining us in a while. He's stuck in traffic. He'll be, he's on his way. And he's fashionably late also. So, um, Pooja, why should we care? Um, so, I mean, FFD is a forum, um, or at least was meant to be a forum, where countries come together to address systemic issues in the global financial system that's um, undermining efforts to mobilize resources for development. So what it's not is it's not a pledging conference. It's not a conference where countries come and say, here's a pot of 10 million, here's a pot of 50 million, and so on. It's about talking about structural issues that need to be addressed in the global financial system. So considering we live in this sort of globalized world where you know economies are so closely in integrated, it's not enough to just pay attention to what India is doing uh, on its like home turf, but we need to know how decisions that are being taken globally is affecting also India's decisions at home. So that's why we need to care. <laughs> Yamini? Well, we cannot not care, Biraj, because this is like the big global financial compact. Uh, people say that the resource envelope for this uh, uh, round of negotiations could well be within three trillion US dollars. So it's really the big thing happening there. The sec second reason why we need to care is, as Pooja mentioned, a lot of the issues pertaining uh, to, uh, in the in the conversation in Addis Ababa, for instance, were not on issues of aid. The battle lines were really drawn on issues of taxation, and a country like India can say that, well, aid is not that important for us, but we cannot say that taxation is not equally important. And much of the issues uh, which are really the, the most critical issues on tax right now, such as tax evasion, illicit flows, etc., are issues which are of an international nature, and therefore domestic remedies alone will not suffice. And the third big reason why we need to care about is the entire geopolitics of it. So India is projecting to be a global leader. India wants a seat in the Security Council. And actually, if you look at the, uh, the SDG goals and the latest round of financing conversations, India was in many ways the swing state. So in Addis Ababa, we really stuck our neck out and fought on the taxation issue. So if we really want to be a global leader, not just within G77, but globally, then I think we do need to deeply care about some of care. these issues. Yeah, we cannot but not care. <laughs> we Mr. cannot but care, sorry. Yeah. 
Mr. Desai, you've actually organized so many of the summits. Your take on why should we care? Well, basically, uh, in a sense that reasons differ from uh, summit to summit. But let's, let me put it this way, that essentially what the UN summits did was three, two, couple, a few things. They brought in dimensions of development which were, had not received if we, what we would describe as high-level attention, had been treated as some things which are done by somebody as a welfare measure in addition, for instance, uh, gender issues uh, or uh, environmental issues or issues of uh, social cohesion, uh, of decent work, and so on. So the first thing that one must recognize is that summits in the UN, like Rio, like Copenhagen, like Beijing, uh, like, for that matter, Cairo on population, they brought into the highest levels of decision-making on development issues which had previously been left to be handled by some sort of subsidiary uh, body which had a low political salience at the national level also. Now take FFD, that's a slightly different thing. You know, the very fact that you could hold a discussion on the global financial system in the UN was itself a major achievement. Because the historical record was that the Western countries never wanted the UN to discuss this. You know, in 1960, when the, when the, when the, when the late 50s, when the World Bank was shifting its focus from Europe, it was initially put together as a bank for the reconstruction of Europe, to the developing world, uh, there's a testimony of a U.S. Treasury Secretary to the Senate which says that, oh, we had to agree to keep technical assistance, which is basically UNDP, we had to agree to keep technical assistance to the UN so that we could keep the main uh, dispersing authority, the World Bank, out of the control of the UN. And since then, they have never been agreed to discuss these issues of systemic cohesion, etc. So my argument would be that we should care because for the first time, uh, people who are at the receiving end of the global financial system could participate in a dialogue and a debate on uh, what that system should be. I want to get tell you a little bit more about the first FFT. We'll, we'll take that, uh, sir, soon. Uh, we've just got Mihir and uh, Mihir, we're just discussing why we should care about the Financing for Development Summit. Your take? Well, I think the point about Financing for Development as an idea and the fact that it is something that you know it's being discussed at the multilateral level is that first of all it is the pretty much the only way in which you can try and ensure that there is a that there is a commitment to a sustained and reliable flow of funds all right um, now there are issues that that stem from that or from the nature of how those funds will come but the point is that actually sitting down and talking about this transfer and, 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 and making the point and having people sign on even nominally, um, let's say uh, uh, that they have a moral responsibility to ensure that these transfers happen, that is in itself a sufficient justification for caring. Mm -hmm. Now, beyond that, there are issues that I think we should get into now, but why we should care about it because this is how we ensure that some of the basic inequities of the world order are, are remedied. Thank you.
So uh, actually, this is a perfect segue to go to the next question, Mr. Desai. You were starting to talk about the first FFT. So uh, we are really interested to understand this is the first FFT which is actually happening in the post-meltdown world. So do you want to take us through what is your take about uh, have we progressed or regressed? Uh, first, let me say a little bit more about the first FFT. Uh, because it, it, as I said, the very special thing about that was the very agreement to discuss these issues in the UN. Why did that happen? You know, if you remember, the first FFD was held a few months after uh, 26-11. Uh, sorry, 9-11. Uh, I keep I'm mixing up my uh, events. But it was very soon after 9-11. And at that time, we were preparing for the summit. And as the Undersecretary General in charge, I was under a certain amount of pressure saying, how can you hold this? The whole world is basically focused on the terrorism agenda, et cetera, et cetera. And we cannot hold this meeting. We must postpone it. And my argument was, no, this is what will bring people to the table and with something substantial and concrete. And I was proved right. Even George Bush, the younger, came to the summit and pledged a significant amount of money uh, and I believe it was, it was done because uh, they really sense that uh, one of the things we slay behind 9-11 was the breakdown of uh, development, though they were completely wrong on that, uh, as far as I know. But uh, that's anyhow, that was per the, their perception. And so, uh, in many ways, that was the uh, reason why it got held. In a sense, if you look at the figures on ODA, there was a distinct jump in ODA after Monterey. Once again, that, Monterey once again, sir, for our listeners, ODA is Overseas Development Assistance given by the 34 richest countries from the club called OECD. Organization of Economic and Cooperation and Development. And in 2005, exactly 10 years ago, there was a commitment that the rich countries will put 0.7% of their gross national income into overseas development assistance. Unfortunately, only two countries, UK and Sweden, have actually lived up to the commitment and nobody else. Oh, so. don't, don't say that too loudly. The other Nordics will jump up and down. The <laughs> Denmark, Denmark has reached that. Norway has reached that. Netherlands has reached that. Uh, so don't say that too loudly. <laughs> Otherwise, the, you'll, you'll have a bunch of ambassadors protesting to you. <laughs> but, we uh, would actually me, like let that. Me back to, let me correct you on this. The 0.7% is an ancient goal. It is in 2005. It came way back in, uh, in the, the the miss of uh, time, you know, it's been around all the time, the whole idea of the 0.7% pledge. So uh, it's a very old goal, and, uh, but the United States had never accepted it. Even, I'm pretty sure, if you look at the record of the Addis Ababa Financial Development Summit, there will be a statement after the summit where the U.S. delegate would have said that this is one part they are not, they're not necessarily committed to. Uh, they, will, they always do that. We, we, have, we have always used to live with that. And it's basically just a goal which the Europeans have accepted. Nobody else has. Uh, do you want to finish the point you were saying about ODA? Uh? Yeah, no. The, so there was a, there, there, the other thing that came out of the first FFD was an agreement to discuss economic systemic issues at the UN. And that, I think, was a major uh, uh, achievement. You know? Yeah. Thank you, sir. Pooja, have we progressed or regressed? You've been tracking this process. 
Yeah, I don't think I've tracked it as closely as Nitin has, obviously. But um, I think on many counts, this has been perhaps the most disappointing uh, FFT conference in terms of the outcome document. Uh, and there has been many several steps backwards um, uh, on many areas. So, um, so yes, there was a lot of hope, especially considering this is the big year with the post-2015 agenda. Um, and I think people were really looking to this conference to make the kind of financing commitments that would make the development agenda viable. Uh, so despite that added pressure, um, it has been a very disappointing outcome, I think, yeah. So for our listeners, post-2015 agenda is the development goal that the 193 countries of the world will be signing on to, which will clearly affect your and my lives and our children's lives. And it mostly affects the millennials, the children who were born in 2000, who are 15-year-old now and will be 30 by the end of the post-2015 agenda. Yamini, progress or regress? One minute. Well, Actually, 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> As Pooja mentioned, I think the language gains and gaps are always there. One can always argue that there was better language on one thing and there wasn't. There was a step backward on certain other counts. But I do believe that on one agenda where we, I do believe that we've moved forward significantly is the gender agenda. I am mindful that the feminist groups have critiqued it and rightly so on very solid counts. But I think if you look at the previous two rounds, now gender is mentioned some 32 times. And it's not just about the number of times it's mentioned, it's about where it's mentioned. So it's trade, it's financial inclusion, it's all of it, it's there. And the one important commitment that the Addis Ababa Action Agenda has made is actually in committing that they will significantly scale up the investments on gender to plug in the gender gap. Now, whether that actually happens and actually what we see in India are trends quite to the contrary, but that is one agenda that I would like to flag where I do see some gain. So for our listeners, a shameless plug this time. In this considering there is a menace of manners, that is all male panels. In this particular series, we are actually taking care that not a single of our panel, not a single of our episode will be all male. And that's not counting me. On financing, we're discussing financing for development today, and we actually, even Stevens, we've got two women who are not here because they're women, but because they're experts, and we've got two men. Now let's get back to Mihir, the irrepressible Mihir Sharma. <laughs> Progress or regress? 30 seconds. Well, I think there's been progress in many ways. Uh, the regress is, I think, when people talk about regress, mean, is it a disappointment? And we have to recognize the very fact that the Monterey and so on and so forth were achievements and um, surprised us pleasantly in some ways, means that, you know, our very, uh, our, our, our bars change over time. And if you set a higher bar, then it's obviously going to be dif more difficult to clear it. I think that some of the uh, very negative statements that have emerged after FFD, uh, after this uh, Addis Ababa uh, declaration, were, um, were make, taking it to task about issues which I think would not have even occurred to people to critique Monterey about. So I think we have to recognize that if we're talking about regress, then it's, you know, it's, we're it's, becoming more ambitious we're and becoming more ambitious, hard which to is please. not necessarily a bad yeah, thing. Yeah, hard I, to Can please. I just... Uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir, please. I'll a quick look at the... Uh, uh, let me say this, that uh, I, I, to a certain extent, share the disappointment because I think this summit should have done much more on the tax issue than it did. I'll tell you why. See, the, there's a big change from 2002 and now. And the big change is the way in which the global economy has shifted towards countries like China and India. The other big change is the extent to which 
the global economy rests on this value chain. You know, which, uh, about, I'm told close to half the world trade is within corporations. You know, people, corporations outsourcing their uh, parts and components elsewhere. Now, what this means is that basically issues of, say, transfer pricing, of uh, double taxation treaties, which are fair to the place where income originates and not just for the place where income is received, should have received more attention. This has been an old battle. Even when I was in the UN, I ran an expert group. I got a got hold of a former chair of CBDT, Mr. Shende, to help me. And there we put up an alternative double taxation agreement, which was more fair in terms of attributing the income to the country in which the production and the income generation took place. The present OECD double taxation agreement is heavily biased in favor of the owners of, of the uh, assets who are basically in the West. Now, these are issues which are far more important now than they were 15 years ago. And one of my disappointments is that they have just not uh, been willing to address this uh, issue. And I'm very happy that the Indians stood out for uh, a you know, much more fair system of uh, taxation of companies which are, are able to shift the profits uh, to whichever location they find most attractive from the tax point of view. We know this from, for instance, the whole Mauritius India thing. We, we are very familiar with it. Guys setting up operations in Mauritius and investing from there because of the double taxation treaty we have in Mauritius. We'll, so we'll I, this is my big disappointment that uh, today's world, I, I, when I read this outcome, it reads like something we could have written 20 years ago. Okay. So um, for our listeners, this is about the Central Board for Direct Taxes that determines your and my tax burdens. And that what Mr. Desai is saying is that 20 years ago, there was already a debate about the source country where most of these enterprises are headquartered to be also monitoring and being much more equitable towards the kind of tax stealing that happens in the destination countries. For example, countries like ours, where some of this uh, business enterprises are housed and where the income is actually generated. And I think this is one of those rare occasions where all of us can take pride about how India featured and how India behaved and uh, uh, the kind of pushback it gave to all the rich countries and how it pushed the negotiation to go to the last wire. But before we go to that, and that's, that's going to be the chunky part of the conversation, please stay on till that. But before that, just one more question. This particular summit was happening on the shadow of Greece, and the Greek bailout package was being negotiated at that point. Mihir has an extremely strong opinion that Greek should be made to pay a price for their profligacy. Number one, Puja, did Greece at all share? The irony for our listeners is that Greece did not have its independent voice. It was being represented by the group called European Commission, the same European Commission with whom it had a serious loggerhead back home in Athens and in Brussels about the kind of bail bailout package and the kind of deals that the citizens should be signing up to. So under that shadow, Pooja, did you think Greece at all cast a shadow on the talks? Yeah, I mean, on uh, discussions around debt, there definitely was. So for instance, the outcome document doesn't even acknowledge the existence of the UN debt workout mechanism. And the lender's responsibility also. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, of course, EU, US, I mean, all of them were uh, them collectively 
teach it. Yeah, exactly. So in that sense, it was definitely a shadow, yeah. So for our listeners in 2008, when the meltdown happened, one of the big things that all of us learned is the greed of the debt lenders. And most of the time when there is actually a debt uh, default, it is not just the responsibility of the borrower, but as much the responsibility of the lender. And uh, in short, uh, Mihir, I know you have really strong opinions. You've also discussed it in NL Hafta. In fact, yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, and you've also challenged opinions <laughs> like uh, Jayati Ghosis and all. Do you want to say about uh, what do you think? Well, I think the interesting thing about the Greece bailout so far uh. and uh, the shadow that it could have cast. Or that, did not cast. Or did not cast was that Truthfully, Greece has gotten so much money already precisely because it is a European country. All right, so the, if, it should, if the shadow that it should have cast is one that underlines the existing inequity in the financial order, how so? Well, countries are supposed to get, a, in a, uh, um, if they are going through a international finance-related uh, finance crisis, a, a certain proportion of their contributions to the IMF to help them tide over this uh, turbulent period. Um, on the average, countries like Sri Lanka or Pakistan in our neighborhood, other heavily indebted countries in Africa. Bangladesh, Nepal. Uh, yeah, the, uh, Sri Lanka and Pakistan in particular, which have received uh, IMF uh, help recently, have gotten maybe between 15 and 30, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm giving you a ballpark, I can't remember the exact, between 15 and 30 or 15, 35 times what they have contributed, the IMF quota as it's called. Um, and you'll see most countries are in that range. The two outliers, having received 140 and 170 times, and which is, I remember, you know, as compared to 30, are Greece and Portugal. Let's not waste any more sympathy on Greece and Portugal, all right, and Greece in particular. All right, if, if we're talking about financing for development, then let's talk about where this money is supposed to be going, and this money has been supposed to be going to actually heavily indebted uh, uh, countries that are poor. It's not supposed to go to Greece. Do you want to rebut? Not really. <laughs> uh, Mr. Desai, do you well, have... Well, you know, the, 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 I can give a much simpler take on this, which is that for quite some time now, certainly since 2008, the uh, global financial governance has been run essentially as a welfare state for bankers. Why are we doing who are, who, Remember this, there's a slight difference, incidentally, between the second Greek bailout and the first one. The first one was essentially something where we were bailing out private sector banks which had lent money to Greece. The second one is a little different. It was mostly official uh, money which was at, at, at stake there. And uh, the 2008, the Lehman rescue was, was essentially that. You go back to the savings and loan crisis. I mean, we used to joke at the time of the first FFT that the easiest way of mobilizing uh, a development aid is to set up savings and loan associations in, in, in the United States, get them to lend all their money <laughs> to developing countries, declare them bankrupt, and the U.S. Senate will rescue them. <laughs> that would have been the easiest way of raising money. So the whole system has been run uh, in a very, uh, very uh, distorted manner. I'm, I'm not saying any sympathy for Greece or any such thing. I'm very profligate. Profligacy is never something that one uh, wishes to condone. But at the same time, recognize that there are very few bankers who have taken a serious haircut as a consequence of these debt uh, issues. 
So I, I, I think uh, this is something which the UN guidelines on debt uh, you know, negotiations are a little more, more, more balanced. And uh, I'd say that uh, I don't entirely agree with him uh, here on this one, though I would accept that the second Greece bailout was mainly uh, of uh, trying to involve official uh, loans which they had to repay. And uh, so uh, yes, Mr. we will continue to be run yeah. as a welfare state for bankers because of the sheer globalization of finance is such right. that no country can afford to let a big bank fail. Yeah. Mr. Desai, thank you on that one. Um, but I cannot but help chipping in for our listeners. Goldman Sachs cooked the books, and as Mr. Desai says rightly, Goldman Sachs actually cooked the books to first make Greece attractive to be a member of European Commission. The oligarchy and the banks, the German banks especially, who were extremely greedy, did serious risk-taking, were the ones who actually took all the money in the first bailout package. The second bailout package is hitting hard the arm janta, the regular citizens. And uh, I know Mihir has a lot of opinion, and a lot of it is well-researched and strong ones also. And this will be an extremely salivating conversation between the two. But we cannot afford that one final word, Mihir, huh. since I weighed in on side of <laughs> Mr. Desai. No, 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 no. it's perfectly acceptable. Um, my sole point is that, in fact, there was, I mean, by and large, I agree that we have to work out some way to ensure that we're not constantly being blackmailed by big banks. That seems to be a constant feature of crises. And I believe uh, LIBOR has only just now punished one person who's very junior. The six have eventually gotten trouble. But anyway, the, the point being that there, this is a, a feature of the system that we have to deal with, and I'm not questioning it. However, on one minor point of fact, I think on, on the average, uh, in, even in the first bailout, there was an average haircut taken by the lenders of between 40 and 50 percent. So it's not a, not a completely small amount. I mean, they did pay. 40 and 50 percent, losing 40 or 50 percent is, you can argue that they should have lost more, but they did lose something. For our viewers, LIBOR is the London interbank offer rate, which is basically what determines the country's sovereign and lending repayment back. And it, it, came, it went through an extremely big scandal in 2012 when they thought that market forces and autonomously LIBOR was being uh, determined, but it was realized that there were traders who were fixing LIBOR rates. And that's been a big uh, scandal and of global finance. And the, as Mihir said, the charge sheets have just started coming in. The cows have come home to, and uh, to moo, or the chickens have come home to roost. And as per my information, I think one junior trader has just been imprisoned. But Mihir says there are a few more, which I think is a good thing. But we also need the big sharks, like Mr. Desai said, who should also be uh, punished. For our listeners, again, if you are interested to track this issue more, then ProPublica has been doing a series of investigative journalism on this. Carmen Segura's uh, recordings of how the Fed, Federal Reserve, the RBI of United States, stopped the regulators from going 
heavily after the private banks and the big, too big to fail banks and while they were doing all these scandals and the rigging, rate rigging and all, is something that you would like to follow. We'll give the link also for Carmen Segura's stories on ProPublica. Now let's go to the elephant in the room and something that all of us can take collective pride on, even though we've got people with global remit, including myself, sitting in this room. Um, let's talk about taxation. I understand India and Uruguay held out till the last moment, even when Brazil and South Africa folded. There was much feeling and dealing. There was much pressure from European Union, US, Japan, Australia, the big four. Puja. Tell us, spill the beans. Yeah, um, I mean, the issue that was really that went down to the wire in Addis Ababa, and this was the only open issue at the conference, um, it was the issue of having an intergovernmental tax body within the UN. Um, so at the moment, the only intergovernmental body that we have that uh, devises global tax standards is the OECD. And developing countries were saying that, you know, that's not good enough. These issues affect us deeply and um, we need to have a seat at the table uh, and we need to be able to set the agenda and also design these rules. Um, so at the moment, there is something called the UN Tax Committee, which is within the UN, but it's not an intergovernmental committee. So it has no real power, the standards that they devise. Uh, and so what developing countries were asking for was that that should be upgraded to an intergovernmental body. Um, You're I not mean, very impressed with the tax inspectors without border initiative? <laughs> No, I mean, you know, I think it was a pretty patronizing initiative to come and talk about capacity building when developing countries were really saying we want to seat at the table to devise the rules. So for our um, listeners, there was this initiative which has been started by the richest countries of the world called Tax Inspectors Without Borders, much akin to this extremely respectable charity called Doctors Without Borders, where these uh, gurus of the countries which actually do maximum tax evasions will go around telling the world how to maintain your books and how to uh, go after the tax evaders. And according to Pooja, it's actually patronizing. It's almost assuming that out of the 193 countries, only the 34 countries have the knowledge to do any kind of taxation planning and taxation uh, uh, follow-up, and they have the God-ordained capacity to tell the rest of the 160 countries of the world that we're coming here to teach you. Is that what it is, Pooja? Yeah, no, I mean, it was also a bit, uh, I mean, it struck me as kind of, um, uh, strange also because we've seen scandals coming out of EU and UK with Google, Amazon, so on, not paying taxes. So actually, it's the Ireland rules are such a, that... Ireland is a tax haven, right? Right, yeah. yeah. So I mean, the rules are such that OECD tax administrations are themselves really struggling. Uh, and OECD themselves had to admit that the international tax rules is not fit for purpose. Uh, so then to come and talk about capacity building is, you know, who really has the capacity is the question. Yeah, yeah, so by the time we reached there, as Pooja rightly mentioned, I think uh, it was India and US all horns locked on the issue of taxes, which was very interesting. And for me, it was fulfilling in a way. For the first time, we saw Indian civil society start by stand by the side of the government, which was interesting in its own ways. Uh, ultimately, India had lost the battle in the sense that they, there was no agreement that the uh, intergovernmental body of experts will be the, the body of experts will be elevated to the level of an intergovernmental body where the South will also have a voice on the table. So I think that was one of the biggest losses for, for many of us from the Addis Ababa Action Accord. As somebody rightly said during the, con during the, um, uh, during the conference, that if you're not on the table, you're on the menu. So yes, <laughs> yes. 
So yes, that yeah. was the biggest thing. And I think for a country like India also, that's very important, especially since aid money has become more and more insignificant for us. And it's really the tax res uh, resource mobilization front where the battles will be fought now. Mm. Mir? Well, okay, I'm going to disagree with everyone. Um, ah, that's why Mir is here. <laughs> so uh, there are a couple of things to think about here, right? Um, the first is, what is the nature of the tax thing that we are trying to get at? And um, so as, was, as, as uh, Nitin uh, said a little earlier, we now live in a world which is, uh, in which supply chains are very sort of disaggregated. Yeah. So they're all over the place. And um, what this means is that transnational companies with clever accountants can price the way that they charge each other's subsidiaries very cleverly in such a, and in such a way that they can basically shift their costs to high tax uh, uh, jurisdictions and keep their profits in low tax jurisdictions, which means that you, you, play the, you play the differences in the taxes between countries if you're present in both countries in such a way that you, you take a little bit extra home. Now, the, uh, how does one deal with this? The answer is that actually in most cases, Countries that are able to work out exactly how this is happening can, in fact, force transnational companies through their own domestic rules to at least claw back some of, some of what they're losing. Now, we have run into trouble in India doing this recently. All right? We have, for example, had an entire plant of 10,000 people more than that, if, in effect, if you include the subsidiary people the in Madras, in Nokia, shut down because of essentially a transfer pricing dispute. Um, and to tell you the truth, in many of these occasions when we've made transfer pricing claims, our CBDT has made transfer pricing claims, if you go and then you look at the nature of the claims they're making very closely, they don't always stand up to scrutiny. Um, on the other hand, there are many other claims that they could make in which we don't stand up to scrutiny. Furthermore, sometimes we change our own rules in such a way that helps multinationals for no, com no reason that we can, I can understand. So, for example, in 2011 or thereabouts, I think 2012, it was. 2012, Vodafone case. No, no, there's another one. We changed our, 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 we raised or removed, I can't remember, our cap on royalty payments for multinationals. So what that means is, for example, that a company like Maruti Suzuki can start sending enormous amounts of Maruti Suzuki's profits home to Japan as royalty for using the word Suzuki. All right, earlier it was capped at a certain amount, and but now, essentially, on uh, 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 to, to give you an, the example that I use in in, in my book, uh, the royalty payments that that Maruti Suzuki hence sends home to Suzuki for the use of the name Suzuki are maybe 12 to 15 times their dispute on their wage bill with their employees that shut down their, their Manasar company. Now, this is something that is completely within the power of the Indian government. In most cases, uh, the ability to fix your tax loopholes is something that is within the power of the domestic jurisdiction. So, okay, so that's point one. Let's, it's not necessarily, it's a transnational problem, but there are domestic fixes. Secondly, is it the case that the, you know, the, the UN is in fact the best location for this? I would claim that as India becomes a larger country, it has to take, it has to recognize that it has the capacity, it, 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 has a, it occupies a unique position. 
it has the capacity to make these judgments and to make these bargains in bilateral relationships with a lot of large economies, in its bilateral negotiations with Germany or with Singapore, for example, um, while maintaining that it has, while maintaining the common interests that it has with a lot of poorer countries, because we are still a, a, a low-income uh, country, we're not a middle-income country. What does this mean? This means that when we are talking about negotiating double tax avoidance agreements, when you know the, these are the uh, DTAs are essentially the things that are keeping, you know, the tax system unfair in some ways. We should be able to create those prototypes and those uh, those prototype fair DT, DTAs ourselves. So why are we sitting and arguing? for a group, for a seat at a high table, a very confusing high table, and let's face it, much though everyone loves the UN, much though everyone loves the G77, these are unwieldy organizations. We're already at many high tables. We're observers at the G7. We're sitting in the G20. We're, we're, all, we're negotiating, we could renegotiate DTAs right now. If we, to tell you the truth, we went to this arguing for the United Nations thing purely because we want to be sitting in at another high table. All right. Nothing there are wrong with that, no? With we can, but, but there's so much else that we can do. Yes, yes, on one or two things. Yes, Mr. Desai. Yeah. Actually, first, that the uh, expert group which you're talking about in the UN uh, is an expert group, but let's, let me tell you quite frankly, it is run as an intergovernmental group. Every expert who was on that group was named by the government, in fact, supported by the government. When we had meetings there, we have no idea how high a level of participation there was. Uh, in that uh, meeting, the, the whole uh, it was that they used to come at the highest level to negotiate this. Why do it? It's, it, it? The question is not that you do it in the UN. The question is it can't be something which is done by one group of countries where the others have not participated. Like the, what is being promoted mostly by the Western countries is the OECD uh, uh, template for double taxation agreements. And what you need is a forum where the countries who are basically at the other end of capital, the capital flows uh, also have a say in how income should be apportioned between the place where the activity is taking place, the income is being generated, and the place where the income is being received. So, you know, recently within India, we have faced this issue when it comes to uh, income tax, you know, the corporation tax. Because like you have Tata Steel, uh, headquarters are in Bombay, but its production activity is all in Bihar. And uh, this is, uh, so in a sense, what you're seeing as tax collections of Maharashtra are not really tax collections of Maharashtra. They are taxes on income which has been generated in a lot of other places. Now, this is the broader, you know, this is what, uh, where you need a forum where people, you know, where the Bihars of this world also have a seat. Because that's where, they, they, at the moment, the present double taxation agreements give, deep, give them a very bad deal. So I, I entirely agree that you, you, know, you, should not, you don't have to make too much of all this. It doesn't have to be the UN as long as it's a forum where the capital receiving countries have also got a say and a voice. 
can I just Pooja. Yeah, I mean, just getting back to, I think, Mihir's point, um, I mean, where I agree is that I think there is certainly a lot that countries can themselves do domestically, uh, and you don't really have to rely on global standards. Um, and, you know, BRICS is actually a good example of, you know, countries that have been innovating on things like transfer pricing, and they have been standing up to OECD standards saying this doesn't work for us. I think where it, it's a bit more difficult to make that argument is when we're talking about countries that don't enjoy the leverage that BRICS do. Uh, and they do depend on the global standards much more uh, because they can't simply stand up to foreign investors the way that India can afford to uh, and is doing in many ways. Um, so I think that's where you know a global uh, global standards and a global forum and a global body that actually takes their interests into account is extremely important. It's not to replace what needs to happen domestically or at a regional level, but I don't think we can afford to ignore. Uh, I think the pull that you know an OECD standard actually has. Even in India, you have courts that have said, you have the OECD global standards, and the Indian tax administration has argued that this is not a domestic law. But they're like, well, we don't have anything else to go by, so we're going to go by the OECD. So I, I do think it's, it's a bit more gray area than that in terms of saying, what is the uptake of global standards? And if you look at areas such as, say, information exchange, you know, there's been so much said about the Swiss bank accounts. Um, I mean, it's not just about India saying we want information. It's, it's guided by global standards on information exchange. It's guided by what is in these treaties, uh, and you know you can't afford to make those rules in a way that doesn't actually work for developing countries, um, which is what happens now with the OECD. So I, I, I think, yes, a lot can be done, but I don't think it, it answers the whole question of you know taking into different capacities of different countries into account. I'm sure we haven't heard the last on this one. <laughs> this is an unfinished agenda, and I'm sure Mihir will write also about it. And more importantly, I think this is a topic we can explore even today about the incoherence between the global position that Ac India takes and what it, how it behaves internally. But since Yamini is going to leave us, and I'm really interested to hear, with all this energy going on taxes, is this faith-based or is this evidence-based that greater taxes actually results in better social spending? Because we are also the country which gives custom duty uh, waiver on super luxury items like LED TV, jewelries and stuff like that. And we're actually cutting down on social sector spending, be it health or be it women and child development, nutrition programs and all. So is this all a fetish or is this uh, is that money, if we, if we actually collect it more, will go for Amjanta, for your and my and our children's futures? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting question, Piraj. Uh, I think there the problem is at two levels. One is the issue of lack of resources. And then, yes, your question is absolutely valid. We cannot assume that the increased resources will automatically be channeled to social sectors or for any um, um, underprivileged community. But the, so the, I think the problem is at two levels. One is a lack of resources, and the other is a lack of priorities. So once we fix the issue of lack of resources, then we need to get to the issue of where who is doing the priority setting. But I think in a democracy where people have voice, there are social accountability mechanisms, people put pressure on their electorate, there will be a natural setting of priorities that the democracy will have to go by and these will be people's priorities. So I think there is some uh, automatic correction that will happen at this level. But yes, there are, there are problems because as I mentioned, um, say for instance, just taking the gender agenda as an example, the language in Addis Ababa is so progressive, so progressive, yet the last budget we saw what happened, huge cuts, Ministry of Women and Child Development's budget was slashed by half, the gender budget statement shows a decline for the first time, and the government's first line of defense is that with the 14th Finance Commission, we've devolved it and now states 
states will prioritize. Now, the two issues there. One, of course, is that yes, states have got, got a much larger pool of the untied, uh, the uh, the central pool of divisible taxes. But it is also true that it has come along with a reduction in the central assistance to state plans. So, in a one way. What has been given with by one hand has in some ways been taken away by the other hand. Now, it's true that if in absolute numbers, states will still have an increase in the amount of untied funds that they have got. The issue then is what will they prioritize? And I really think that for many of the, some of the issues will get prioritized, but issues like gender, women's unpaid work, child, nutrition, care economy, care economy I mean, we won't even get there. So uh, we'll see the complete story being played out, I think, by, by next year when all the states have presented their budgets for a year or two, and then we can actually see what did get prioritized from this untied pool of money. But I think for many of the states, gender issues and issues of the margin, it's not just gender, it's also issues about Dalits, it's also issues about Adivasis, whoever is not a political voice yet, I think some of those issues will, get, will fall through the cracks. But do you also think that this is actually a worthwhile fight for the simple reason that a lot of times the argument has been, oh, the basket is shrinking, so the pie will shrink also. But here, we can actually say the basket's expanding, Absolutely. but the pie is shrinking and there's no reason and there's no way you Absolutely. can justify that. Yeah. And I don't think anybody, even here, will disagree that our tax-GDP ratio is really very low at 17%, and a lot can be done to step it up, including a thorough look at all the tax exemptions that are given to individuals, to corporates, to everyone. So I think a lot of work and there for luxury items. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I think a lot of uh, work yeah. there still needs to be done. So for our listeners, double taxation agreement is when two countries enter into an agreement, an entity cannot be taxed in both the countries. And what uh, uh, Yamini just said about the tax GDP ratio, in rich countries, in welfare states, in advanced economies, the taxation to gross domestic product ratio is from 25 to 32%, whereas in India, it's about 16 to 17%. And as we are flexing our muscles and becoming emerging economy and our demands for a better human development indicators and investments increases, that percentage should also increase. That's the case that Yamini was making. Thank you, Yamini. And I'm sure we're going to have iterative conversations on this, and this is an yes. unfinished agenda that we'll all have to pick up. My Yamini pleasure. is going to leave us now, but we'll continue the conversation with, like I said, the irrepressible Mihir Sharma, Nitin uh, Desai. So, Nitin is also getting, uh, going off now. I'm just we really keen to have your last words on this uh, thing about greater taxation de facto results in better social spending. Uh, that, I, whether it, uh, it depends then, whether it results in social spending depends on the extent to which the electorate uh, has sufficient uh, influence over the government. I would say that first, what the Finance Commission has done is putting resources in the hands of the state is not a bad idea. Because the operational capacity on education, on health, on roads, on irrigation, on power, is all at the state level and not in the center. So, but my worry is that with the sort of crazy politics, uh, you know, competitive populism that we have, uh, one doesn't want them using it to give free television sets and free pressure cookers and stuff like that. Uh, so I'd say that uh, there is a there is a, it's a fair concern that some people have expressed, but I don't see what's out there. Second, the pop, one point I would make: I don't think you can rely on too much. You really have to have public spending on issues like education, health, uh, etc. And I don't see any alternative to that. We have to recognize that the burden of social expenditure in any sensibly run country will continue to increase and rise. And you must plan your fiscal system 
on the assumption that it is going to continue to rise, and you have to create the fiscal space for uh, what will be rising, what should be rising expenditure on education health. We have really made a mess of our education, public uh, you know, facilities for education and health, and uh, driven people to go to very poorly run private sector entities. I, I think uh, I'm, uh, I don't know whether more taxation necessarily means more social spending, but I don't see any alternative to public spending on education and health. And we have to have tax resources for that, period. Maybe what we should do is to have earmarked tax resources, like the education says, which can't be used for anything other than education. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Desai, and thank you also for taking the time out to join us in this show. And um, I'm sure we'll be engaging more on this and other topics. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Vish. Let's listen to Mihir. I'm sure he has opinions on this. Well, um, well, I think that we have to you know, sort of separate a couple of ideas here. Mm -hmm. All right? There is the first basic question. Does taxation, higher taxation lead to higher social spending? To which the answer is it depends. All right, we really don't know. Um, Will more financing for development? So now, you know, that's, that's the, the, the taxation social spending argument is a very ethereal thing. Let's, uh, let's bring it down to certain concrete things. Will greater financing for development lead to better development outcomes through uh, proper social spending? Well, that depends on a bunch of other things. That depends particularly, very importantly, on the nature of the, the goals that uh, 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 replace the Millennium Development Goals. Now. This is going to be obviously the subject of, a, I believe, a future podcast. Here, but to and start, we hope to have you on that one too. <laughs> but, but you know, just as a, as, a, as, a, as a taster, if the goals are clearly defined and the money right, comes in. Right now there are 17 with 169 targets. Exactly. Christmas tree. There are lots of them and a lot of them are not very clearly written. Whereas in the Millennium Development Goals, countries even that were short of capacity could take the money that was coming to them Puts them, in the, puts them towards these goals. Now, that had advantages and disadvantages, right? I'll come to the advantages and disadvantages in a moment. But the point is that if you have more money coming in for development and you have a clear pathway from that money to development, rather than some nebulous set of goals which will allow for that money to be dissipated into, you know, bribery and, you know, whatever, the many things that we countries can do with money that you give us, then it's a good thing. So we can't talk about... Uh, about uh, about this as a general thing. It depends very specifically on whether that pathway through the goals exists. Finally, uh, um, uh, uh, the, the, and, and, and the additional point we have to make here is, look, we tend, maybe we're sitting in India, so we, 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 uh, we extrapolate from our experience. We are a democracy which generally tends to make itself, uh, make its desires known. Um, I will, you know, I'm, I'm Nitin is left, but but I will disagree with him anyway. Uh, you know, I don't think that if 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 in a democracy people are voting for TVs, they want TVs. All right, okay. Let's 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 make it absolutely clear. There is a, there is a limited amount to which we can sit around a table and say, well, if you know, if they're voting for TVs, they don't really want TVs. Um, the truth is, sometimes people spend, you know, even if you set up microfinance things, it turns out people are spending on consumption assets. And those of us who sit and go home and watch TV every day, maybe should not be so hasty to judge when other people are, you know, borrowing money in order to buy TVs, if you give them the TVs instead. Whatever. Let's, so, let's respect democratic choices. Now, when we, that's, that's our Indian instinct. However, 
when we're talking about financing for development, we're talking about a very heterogeneous set of countries, all right? And in some of those countries, let's face it, the democratic uh, process does not work as well as here, by which I mean some of them are outright and unpleasant dictatorships. Okay, and what we've seen in the past 10 to 12 years, in fact, is a very interesting phenomenon. I mean, I think best, the best example of this being Rwanda, right? Where you have what is essentially a completely uh, um, authoritarian regime, but one which can play the aid game really well, which meets development goals, which, you know, keeps, looks at those 15 things and says, we're taking that money and putting it in such a way, it's gamesmanship. It can fix those results. And um, the answer, so the answer is not always that easy. Yes, I agree. Clear goals, bit of money coming into them means that, um, you know, that you can, that Eventually more, go more into funding, social leads, funding. To, uh, leads to go. But on the other hand, it means, it also means that sometimes bad countries can pretend to be doing a lot better than they are. And I think that's something that we have to worry about in the past 10, 12 years. So it's, there's no clear answer here. Do you have thoughts or doubts? Yes, I have a couple of thoughts. Um, I think we're discussing uh, two different things here. One, will raising more tax revenue necessarily mean we spend on, you know, whatever it is, what we think are good priorities. I mean, that's hard to say. But I think what is a myth in India is the idea that, you know what, we have all the resources. The only problem is we're not spending it in the right places. It's all corruption and it's all, I think that's the myth. And I think what Yamni briefly mentioned, I mean, we have a tax to GDP ratio of 17%. Uh, and that's an embarrassingly low tax to GDP. We're not raising enough tax revenue in this country. But if on, you look at Brazil, that point, on, it's... On that point, yes. Yeah. Why if don't you tell us about right, comparative I mean, economies and what is yeah, the tax Yeah, sure. I mean, with Brazil, ratio. it's at 34%. South Africa is at 32%. Russia is at 31%. Kenya is at 22%. I mean, you know, we're nowhere close to the clubs that we want to be part of. Uh, and so in many ways, we share the struggle of, you know, other low-income countries that are struggling to raise tax, um, tax revenue. Um, the other problem is also that we have an incredibly regressive tax system yeah. where two-thirds of our revenue are coming from indirect yeah. taxes uh, and only one-third from direct taxes. And we're in a country where, even though I think we have much more conversation around how we're spending it, there's very little informed discussion on how are we raising the money. Uh, and, you know, there are some, you know, I think we need to be making much more bolder political choices in terms of talking about inheritance tax or property taxes and wealth tax and so on. Um, so I do, th I do think both sides are important, uh, and, I, 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 and I, whether that necessarily translates to the priorities. We, I mean, that's the democracy we're coming back to, and I, I don't think there are right or wrong answers there. Um, secondly, I mean, can FFD have a bearing on it? I, you know, FFD is a non-binding document, uh, and so I, I think where it can make a real difference. So you mean we spent 58 minutes discussing a <laughs> yes. non-binding document? In the document. end, I just want to say <laughs> that this is a non-binding document. Um, no, but I mean... But it does influence No, exactly. There's something to be said about a normative, you know, discourse. And, and India generally performs very well in non-binding processes. Sure, yeah. No, but I think that's why it's important in these kinds of processes to pay attention to institutional mechanisms, which has a life of its own beyond the empty rhetoric that these documents can have, which is why there was such a fight for the tax body, because it would actually mean you're gaining something, you know, in the real world, and OECD would have to give up some real power, uh, which is why it was fought uh, so bitterly right to the end. Um, 
So, I mean, I, I think it has a limited impact in terms of really uh, influencing priorities. Uh, maybe countries that are dependent on aid, where it's tied to certain, you know, to the post-2015 agenda or the MDGs earlier, perhaps more so. But otherwise, I think uh, it's probably more about how those conversations then become national-level debates, if at all. Otherwise, I'm a bit more cynical. So for both, uh, for our listeners, both our panelists think that the jury is still out about greater tax collection actually resulting in better social spending or not. But at the same time, um, considering India is actually a ground zero of extremely regressive taxation structure where a poor person who uh, buys even from marches to um, cinema ticket pays taxes, whereas a rich person who can actually hire extremely expensive services of a chartered accountant can actually create the kind of income uh, streams that can evade, which is actually called the buffet, Warren Buffet tax, and why Warren Buffet secretary pays more than Warren Buffet. You might want to follow up on that uh, as discourse which is happening. Just Google Warren Buffet taxation, and there are some fantastic readings over there. And um, the other discussion that you might also want to follow is Open Magazine two years ago did a series of stories about how the capital gains tax, the profits made from investments in big enterprises is still lower than personal income tax. So where are we headed as a country if the capital gains tax burden is much lower than personal income tax? Mm -hmm. And India has also been an extremely concerning case of runaway food inflation. It's a country where more than almost 67 to 70% as per the last survey, household income goes into food and fuel. So, and food and fuel, if they're going through a runaway inflation hoop, then that's also a form of regressive tax that our citizens are paying. And these are citizens who are actually in the lowest rung of the society. Um, a lot of thoughts and a lot of thoughts that you should be actually doing some. As, as one of our friends, our close friends, Ravish Kumar says, Consuming news is also about educating them, and that's part of this series also, about being informative, engaging, and educating. So please take time out to follow some of the streams also that our fantastic experts discussed, and that we do not have the time to discuss in the length that we should be. Um, one sentence, final word. How would you uh, wrap up the FFT for us, Mihir? Um, I think that, yes, it was a disappointment, but um, to the extent that it's a disappointment, we should ask ourselves what it is that we can do to try and fix the, the, the many ways in which money leaves our shores, and there's a lot that we can be do doing domestically. Yes. And Pooja? Um, yeah, I mean, I agree it's a disappointment. doesn't mean we stop having these uh, discussions. Uh, but I also think it has implications for taking the post-2015 agenda seriously. Uh, so without the financing, I don't see wha what discussion we'll have on development agenda. Thank you very much. You were listening to the News Laundry podcast, Global Summits, Where Are We Going? We would like to thank our collaborators, Save the Children India, the leading nonprofit dedicated to children for their support in bringing this program to you. This is part of the global campaign called Action 2015, which is about building public education and awareness about all these global summits and how they touch your and my lives and our children's lives. This episode was produced by Kartik Nijavan from Team News Laundry. In the next episode, we will have Priya Pillai. And what are we going to be discussing? 
As you know, we've been going through a season of bans, but something much more fundamental to dissent and freedom of speech is the right to peaceful assembly and association. We have a kick-ass set of panels, global and local experts, someone who has actually been deplaned from flight to talk about what are the multiple restrictions and multiple mutinies happening about reclaiming right to peaceful assembly and association. So please stay tuned. We would love to hear from you. Give us your feedback, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and please support independent media so you can decide where are we going. This is Biraj Swain signing off from News Laundry. Catch all new episodes of Global Summits Where Are We Going on newslaundry.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook.